Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Have you ever just seen something and known that you'll fucking love it? Personally, from the first moment I learned it was possible to be jacked, I knew I wanted to be. I remember being in fourth grade in Alabama at my friend Trey's house when I first witnessed Dragon Ball Z. Weird side note, uh, Trey used to spit on the floor of his own house, and I was like, oh, cool, That's mu- that must just be what his family does. And then I spit on the floor, and he told on me, what a bitch. But he and I, irrespective of that, were bonded with a love of Dragon Ball Z. I viscerally remember Goku training for Frieza, discipline, martial arts, grit, giant jacked body and the solution to defeating any of the bad guys in dragon ball z was just to get more energy which looked like getting into a goblin-esque shit crouch flexing and then repeating mantras like i won't let you hurt my dad and going super saiyan eyes flashing back and forth crazy noises jacked And to this day, I still get goosebumps thinking about that scene where Gohan went Super Saiyan 2 and saved the fucking world and his dad. Or, I'll even say his name because respect, Dr. Dolberger, my parents' jacked fucking anesthesiologist friend. I remember I was like 12 or 13. I've been doing push-ups and sit-ups, dips, martial arts workouts for like four years with a blinding obsession that set me apart from normal kids. But not in like a, oh, look how cool that is, but more like a, what the fuck is wrong with this kid sort of way. And I wanted to get into lifting. You know, I, like I asked my parents for Christmas, like, hey, can, can I somehow get into lifting for Christmas? Because I didn't know where to start. And so my parents, in their infinite kindness but lack of wisdom, signed me up for what they thought was like Westside Barbell. Like, I'm going to go train with Louis Simmons. Hell fucking yeah. Turns out it was fucking fat camp. I was the only kid who wanted to be there. I remember uh, we had to go around and raise our hand. They said, hey, how many of you did your parents force to be here? Every single kid but me raised their hand. And they're like, well, why are you here? I'm like, I want to get jacked. And they're like, well, we're have to do some stretches. And like, you got to wait six weeks. The last uh, workout of the program, we're going to go do the weights. And I was like, this fucking fat camp sucks. But not because I don't want to work out, but because I'm not working out enough. So... Desperate to redeem herself after her failure of accidentally sending me to fucking fat camp, my mom asked Dr. Dolberger, hey, do you know anything about about weight training for teens? And he's like, yes, I invented it. And my mom's like, well, that's a weird thing to say, but cool. You want to take my son into your basement? And he's like, yeah, my basement's giant. And uh, he invited me into his basement. And I remember there are these adjustable Bowflex weights. I remember him doing curls and 
he got what I now recognize is a fucking disgusting pump. He looked alien. It looked like he'd just gotten back from the Amazon rainforest and he'd gotten infected with parasites that lived under his paper thin skin. He told me he worked out at 5 a.m. I didn't know much about life at the tender age of 14, but I sure knew I was willing to do whatever I had to to look like that. To this day, I get I get up 30 minutes earlier because, you know, got to get ahead of Dr. Dolberger, but early morning workouts, man. I remember I got some weights at home, started working out before school. Uh, the weights went up to 45 pounds and I hammered on them until it just wasn't enough resistance. You know, I remember doing jump lunges, holding the 45 pound weights and then like running to the bathroom and throwing up and being like, I think I'm sick. No idiot. You just did jump lunges with 45 pound weights. A child with a man's dream. But then holiest of holies, I got my first gym membership to Cardinal Fitness and my brother, Jordy, and I started working out together. I studied bodybuilding magazines like they were textbooks. I designed our workouts and we went fucking hard. I'll never forget a YouTube video of Tom Platt's best quads the world has ever produced. He got hypnotized prior to his leg workout so he could go harder on leg extension. There's a scene of him yelling, kill me, more, more, kill me. And, uh, 15-year-old Troy was like, well, I, again, don't know much, but that seems like a pretty good thing to do. And so Jordy and I imbued with the ferocious spirit of Tom Platt's zero knowledge about science, we started getting after it. You know, leg day was squat, deadlift, leg press, leg extension, leg curl, and then to finish off, we did four sets of walking lunges at the end. We were, first time we did it, we were literally crippled for seven days. Neither of us could go to Taekwondo for like four days. And they were like, what? They were like, hey, are you coming to Taekwondo? I'm like, I can't walk. And they're like, that's weird. Jordy said the same thing. What the fuck did you guys do? I'm like, well, hey, we're trying to get gorilla muscle over here. And that was the time of the old formula of jacked or jack 3D. Never knew how to pronounce it. And uh, so, so, dude, we were basically slamming fucking amphetamines at 5 a.m. before high school. Unkillable discipline, a lifelong passion. And as I write this, no joke, this actual weekend, 16 years later, Jordy and I both hit PRs in my basement this time, drank some whiskey and shotguns under realistic, stressful conditions. But from the first moment I saw lifting, I knew I was going to like it. And that, my priest, is actually how I felt about this book when I first came across it. Almost to the point where I didn't even want to get it. I was like, atomic habits, let me guess, habits are good. But I've recently gone deep into uh, listening to content by this fella, Alex Hormozy, jacked as fuck, same age as me, owns multiple companies, worth a hundred million dollars that he built from the ground up. And this fella cited this book so much, I decided, Fuck it. If Alex, the God King, says that this is partially responsible for him being rich, jacked, and a God among men, well, goddammit, who am I to get in the way? And I kid you not. Within 20 pages, I knew I was going to cover it on the next podcast in the same way as that one time that I was eight years old in Alabama and I found a five pound weight in the garage and I just did curl, 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 120 degrees by myself eight years old i remember mm, i think i think i'm doing it right no i wasn't but in the same way i realized that that was my destiny i realized that this book was my fucking jam and the author james clear 
is everything a man might dream of in a quiet private moment. A former savage baseball player, he got into powerlifting. He didn't know much, but he did know one thing, how to not quit. He built a business, he got rich, he started a blog, he became obsessed with habits, he lost his hair, and he wrote this book. And my priests, think of all of your dreams. Maybe you want to be a dragon, maybe you want a longer penis, or maybe even slabs of muscle so that every movement you make in the office just shows off your gratuitous gains. You've taken it so far, you're not even sexy. You're just a walking penis. You go to the company pool party, you take off your shirt, you're tatted as fuck and shredded, a hulking monster. You walk by groups of women and you just hear muttering like, ooh, too far, too far. And you know they're talking about you and how far you've taken your gains, but their comment, it takes you too far and you orgasm immediately. Nay, nay, wench is my destiny as gorilla muscle. If that is what you might be curious about or maybe want, stay tuned. For what follows is as important as what those stodgy old colonialists did in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention in that hot room. Man, musk abounding, debate, argument, having to keep Benjamin Franklin in line because in the evenings he'd get drunk and try to tell everybody the secrets. But in spite of all of that, a new model of government was forged and prosperity ravaged the land. And that is what is in store for you, my praise, if you stick with this. And so James is going to spin us a yarn, the likes of which hasn't been told since Colonel Cooper's Art of the Rifle. And if you can stay present, if you can be here, if you can listen up, this might just be the thing that blesses your trigger finger with supersonic speed and allows you to have hollow canines to drink human blood. Into the book. Atomic definition is an extremely small amount of a thing. A single irreducible unit of a larger system. A source of immense energy or power. Uh, you probably have to read the damn book, but he's like a picture of a dictionary. He's defining some words. Habit is a routine or practice performed regularly. An automatic response to a specific situation. Oh God. On the final day of my sophomore year of high school, I was hit in the face by a baseball bat. As my classmate took a full swing, the bat slipped out of his hands and came flying forward towards me, striking me directly between the eyes. I have no memory of the moment of impact. The bat smashed into my face with such force that it crushed my nose in a distorted U-shape. The collision sent the soft tissue of my brain slamming into the inside of my skull. Immediately, a wave of swelling surged throughout my head. In a fraction of a second, I had a broken nose, multiple skull fractures, and two shattered eye sockets. Shocked, confused, I was unaware of how seriously I had been injured. My teacher looped his arm around my shoulder, and we began the long walk to the nurse's office. Across the field, down the hill, back into school, random hands touched my sides in the same way as when a girl crowd surfs at a metal concert. Holding me upright, we took our time and walked slowly but nobody realized that every minute mattered. I didn't know what year it was. I didn't know what my mom's name was. I'd forgotten my sexuality completely. This is the last question I remember. Then, <laughs> I guess not the sexuality part. I might've added that. I think he's talking about his mom's name. So he got hit in the fucking face. He's, uh, 
he's like, okay, you know, walk, walk it off, walk it off. And you look at him, it looks like he got a shotgun blast in the face. And he's like, I don't think I'm healthy. He doesn't remember anything. The last question he remembers is like, yep, I don't know my mom's name. And that was when his body was unable to handle the rapid swelling and he lost consciousness. The ambulance arrived. He was carried out of school, taken to a local hospital. Then his body started shutting down. He had a seizure. He couldn't swallow or breathe. Uh, his mom flew in. Uh, a team of nearly 20 doctors and nurses sprinted to the helipad and wheeled him into the trauma unit. By this time, the swelling in his brain had become so severe that he was having repeated post-traumatic seizures. Now, not to be insensitive and likely overconfident, but I think I would have been totally fine because I am not good at much, but God damn it, I can take a punch. Now, again, I've never been hit in the face with a baseball bat, though I was walking under a construction site one time and a uh, two by four just like fell off and hit me in the head. And I was like, oh, God damn it. <sighs> good thing that hit me in the head or I could have been hurt. So I don't know, overconfident, but regardless, James, his face got caved in. He's dying and he's a sophomore in high school. My broken bones needed to be fixed, but I was in no condition to undergo surgery. After yet another seizure, my third of the day, I was put into a medically induced coma and placed on a ventilator. Mercifully, by the next morning, my breathing had rebounded to the point where the doctors felt comfortable releasing me from the coma. When I finally regained consciousness, I discovered that I had lost my ability to smell. As a test, a nurse asked me to blow my nose and sniff an apple juice box. Which is really fucking dumb, I think. Like, I broke my nose and the doctor was very clear about like, hey fucker, don't blow your nose really bad because you'll pop your fucking broken nose out. And so that nurse needs some, needs some fucking coaching. But the act of blowing my nose, he says, forced air through the fractures in my eye socket and pushed my, my left eye outward. My eyeball bulged out of the socket. So like, when you shoot a groundhog, uh, in the head, if you're good at if you're good at firearms, um, be in you know you don't just do this for fun, but like dude, they'll eat your structure. So we have we had like twelve groundhogs that were just for I don't know eight years had made a eh, that's probably an exaggeration at least five years had just made like an elaborate like London underground tunnel under my gigantic horse barn. Uh, and like they do that too much. Like they're eating the wood, they're fucking making tunnels. Like that thing is gonna come down. Like that's not structurally sound. So. I was on, I've been on the hunt for him. And I actually, one day I, uh, two headshots with one bullet. Oh my God. But both of their eyes popped out and it weird groundhogs must not have very good eyes, but that's what happened to James. Like a groundhog, uh, it, his eye popped out. He says the following months were hard. I felt like everything in my life was on pause. I had double vision for weeks. I literally couldn't see straight. It took more than a month but my eyeball did eventually return to its normal location. Between the seizures and my vision problems, it was eight months before I could drive a car again. At physical therapy, I practiced basic motor patterns like walking in a straight line. I became painfully aware of how far I had to go when I returned to the baseball field one year later. Baseball had always been a major part of my life. My dad had played minor league baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, and I had a dream of playing professionally too. After months of rehabilitation, what I wanted more than anything was to get back on the field. And dude, I, you know, I didn't get fucking smashed in the face, but I've been there where it's like, okay, cool. In two months, I'm probably gonna be back. And then two months passes, you're like, 
dude, I'm still fucked. You're like, okay, well, you know, six more months, I'm going to really commit to, to rehab. Like, you know, like it's going to be good. I'm going to, I'm going to make it. And then six months come by and you're like, I think I'm a tiny bit less fucked, but like no chance I can go back to doing MMA or no chance for him. He can go back to baseball. So he, so he has to like go through a whole year and he comes back and he pretty much sucks uh, at baseball. He says, after a year of self-doubt, I managed to make the varsity team as a senior. So he's probably like about to make varsity as a sophomore, gets smashed in the face, isn't like kind of sucks ass as a junior. And, you know, the coach like probably feels like, man, I really should play him. But it's like, hey, buddy, you can't even see because uh, and he says the same thing. He says he rarely made it on the field in total. I played 11 innings of high school varsity baseball, barely more than a single game. Dang. Despite my lackluster high school career, I still believed I could become a great player. I knew that if things were going to improve, I was the only one responsible for making it happen. The turning point came two years after my injury when I began college at Denison University. I wasn't going to be starting on the baseball team anytime soon, so I focused on getting my life in order. While my peers stayed up late and played video games. Ooh, video games. I built good sleep habits. Okay. Went to bed early each night. Mm, he was that guy. In the messy world of the college dorm, I made a point to keep my room neat and tidy. Bitch. These improvements were minor, but they gave me a sense of control over my life. Let me tell you what I did in college. I got a 3-2. You know, very passable. Meets the minimum threshold for most jobs. Awesome lifted absolutely hard as fuck i remember just trying to get jacked still uh, on this never-ending quest and uh i took a shitload of pre-workout still didn't know that much about strength and conditioning i was still like smash eats muscle once a week and train insane son and uh so i was doing a, a set of pull-ups to failure and i think i hit 33 pull-ups or something and you know like looking back was that stopping at the bottom letting the momentum stop no but was that with that pass in the military i think it would so i hit 33 and then i was like what is happening to me i'm gonna throw up and then i, I ran to the bathroom i threw up and in the stall and from the other stall out walks my recruiter and he was a very distinctive fellow famous at the paw because he recruited like 60 percent of the campus and he goes young troy are you all right? And I'm like, uh, hey Keith, uh, no, I, uh, I'm, I'm good, man. I just, I just did a set of pull-ups. He's like, young Troy, how does a set of pull-ups make you throw up? I'm like, well, I tried to push it pretty hard. Can you, uh, can you, can you leave me alone? But I played rugby. I got blackout drunk like 95 times, though I, I would, I would usually try to plan it to not have it interfere with my workouts. So I, I will say, you know, he's he's just putting forth this uh, go to bed early in college and get your room organized. And like, I don't think you have to be that weird OCD kid in college to have success. But, you know, it's the principle of the thing. A habit is a routine or behavior that is performed regularly and in many cases automatically. As each semester passed, I accumulated small but consistent habits that ultimately led to results that were unimaginable to me when I started. For example, for the first time in my life, I made it a habit to lift weights multiple times per week. And in the years that followed, my six foot four frame bulked up from 170 pounds to a lean 
200 pounds. Oh, shit. Okay. Six years after I'd been hit in the face with a baseball bat, flown to the hospital, lost my sexual identity briefly, and placed into a coma, I was selected as the top male athlete at Denison University and named to the ESPN Academic All-American team, an honor given to just 33 players across the country. Okay. I don't know anything about that, but... Um, Maybe that's not as cool as it sounds. So I was actually an academic All-American at wrestling, too, which meant that all the academic All-Americans and all the state champions and actual All-Americans got to go to this state wrestling dinner. Had to wear nice clothes, had to go. It was the fucking worst because there was like, I don't know, four academic All-Americans, me being one of them, and like... I don't know, 30 state champs or something like across the different divisions and, and whatever. And so it became like this, this conversation starter. It's like, hey, would you would you uh, what weight class did you win state? And I was like, well, I fucking suck at wrestling, but I'm a nerd. So uh, I hate this place. <laughs> and so, But apparently James loved it. He says, I never ended up playing professionally. However, looking back on those years, I believed I accomplished something just as rare. I fulfilled my potential, and I believe the concepts in this book can help you fulfill your potential as well. We all face challenges in life. This injury was one of mine, and the experience taught me a critical lesson. Changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you're willing to stick with them for years. And that's the key here. He's going to go through a lot more. But in the same way that the book, The Compound Effect, kind of laid this out, this is a this is a habit-focused kind of version of The Compound Effect. But God damn it, dude, I wanted to hate it. I already told the whole thing, and but it's great. Um, so that's what he's going to talk about. You know, it, these are these small little things that he and he helps us engineer these these compounding habits so it doesn't even feel that hard. But the summary: chip away brick by brick. The only way to make progress, the only choice you have is to start small and keep going. So he started a business, he started a blog, everyone loves him, whatever. Uh, how this book will benefit you according to James. The entrepreneur, investor, male model, Naval Ravikant has said, to write a great book, you must first become the book. I have a dream of one day writing a book called How to Be a Fucking Adult. And it has workout information, personal finance, recipes, self-defense, basically all the things that uh, a, a man should know. But I guess he's saying I've I got to become an adult first. And so I'm still probably like, you know, seven to 12 years away from writing that book. But James says, I originally learned about the ideas mentioned here because I had to live them. I had to rely on small habits to rebound from my injury, to get stronger in the gym, to perform at a high level on the field, to build a business and achieve my dreams. Small habits help me fulfill my potential. And since you picked up this book, I'm guessing you'd like to fulfill yours as well. In the pages that follow, I will share a step-by-step -step plan for building better habits, not for days or weeks, but for a lifetime. While science supports everything that I've written, this book is not an academic research paper. It's an operating manual. 
You'll find wisdom and practical advice front and center as I explain the science of how to create and change your habits in a way that is easy to understand and apply. So he's saying, hey bitch, I lived this shit and this is all rooted in science, but this ain't no psychobabble mumbo jumbo. This is a goddamn instruction manual to be a man or a woman, metaphorically, you know what I'm saying? And so he's going to tease us a little bit of some of the content. Um, the backbone of this book is my four-step model of habits. Cue, craving, response, and reward. And I can tell I've played a lot of pool because I'm incapable of saying the word cue without thinking of a pool cue. And so that's the, that's the basis, the cue, craving, response, and reward. And then mapped over that, he's built these four laws of behavior change. And so it's a journey. It's worth it. Um, you know, but I think like the science part is the cue, craving, response, and reward. You know, that's how habits work. We'll talk about it a bunch more. And then overlaid, he, he builds a framework. And I think that's where like I'm mostly on board, but there's a few things where it's like, just don't be a pussy. And then that's the actual solution. But it's pretty good or else I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sharing it with you guys. There's no one right way to create better habits. But this book describes the best way I know. An approach that will be effective regardless of where you start or what you're trying to change. The strategies I cover will be relevant to anyone looking for a step-by-step -step system for improving. Whether your goals center on health, money, productivity, relationships, or all of the above. And that is where we're going. I won't share again the local time, Eastern Standard Time, but uh, the claw is the law. And one other comment, um, I'm so disconnected, you know, I like that Mythbusters, um, there's like, I can't even remember what the actual quote is, but I've just like changed it, and um, he says something like, I reject your reality and substitute my own, but I reject your social norms and substitute my own. I'm so disconnected from the, the cool kids that I don't know how unmanly White Claw is, I feel like it's pretty cool. But it's possible that it's like uh, as socially frowned upon as like drinking apple teeny in a shaker cup. But you know what? I'm going to just be myself and I'm going to drink it because it's delicious. Section one, the surprising power of small changes. The fate of British cycling changed one day in 2003. The organization was the governing body for professional cycling in Great Britain. And it had recently hired Dave Brailsford as its new performance director. And at the time, professional cyclists in Great Britain, they fucking sucked. For over 100 years, everybody hated them. In fact, the performance of British riders had been so bad that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team. <laughs> Imagine you're a, you know, you're a uh, professional shooting team and Glock won't not even give you free guns. Glock won't even sell you guns. I mean, you're like, but guys, you'll sell Glocks at Walmart. And they're like, go to Walmart. Like, but I'm a, I'm a shooting team. Like, can we buy your guns? Can we buy this specific package? They're like, you guys fucking suck. Go to Walmart. That's what's happening to the British cycling. And that's been happening for a hundred years. And this fella Brailsford, he'd been hired to break necks, snap cocks, and change shit. What made him different? from previous coaches was his relentless commitment to a strategy that he referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, which was the philosophy 
of searching for a tiny margin of improvement in everything you did. Brailsford said, the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improved it by 1%, you will get a significant increase when you put them all together. Speak to me, Lord. Brailsford and his coaches began to make small adjustments you might expect from a, from a professional cycling team. They redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable. You know, I had to do that. I've got a I've got an exercise bike in the basement and it was I had this like stock seat and it was like basically like a leather a little piece of leather covering metal. And dude, I will tell you, I was not as consistent or as effective riding when, you know, within 4 minutes my entire gooch, balls, butthole, and testicles would fall asleep. I guess balls and testicles are synonyms, but you guys get it. And I moved to a, a much more comfortable, better seat. And man, there's even like a place where nuts just lay there. And, and so I could sit for, you know, for six hours now instead of like 40 minutes. So they redesigned, redesigned the bike seats. You probably expect that. Um, they got a little bit more sophisticated and they asked the riders to wear electrically heated overshorts to maintain ideal muscle temperature while riding. Um, they used biofeedback sensors. So like, you know, hey, let's take a baseline of their heart rate and their heart rate variability because one of the things, one of the measures of overtraining is when your heart rate, like your resting heart rate starts being different. Um, that's, a, that's a clue. It doesn't guarantee it, but so they're doing that. They're testing fabrics in the wind tunnel, um, but they didn't stop there. Brailsford and his team continued to find 1% improvements in overlooked and unexpected areas. They hired a surgeon to teach each rider the best way to wash their hands to reduce the chances of catching a cold. That's crazy, man. That's like some John Wooden shit. Like He would always start every um, basketball season with teaching the, the, the players how to put on their socks, which is crazy but also like hey i know you've worn socks forever but this is how we wear socks it shows the commitment to detail but also like if you put your socks on really stupid you can get some blisters and that's just a dumbass thing to have as these and hundreds of other small improvements accumulated the results came faster than anyone could have imagined just five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track cycling events at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, where they won an astounding 60% of the available gold medals. Four years later, when the Olympic Games came to London, the Brits raised the bar as they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. During the 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 world championships and 66 Olympic gold medals and captured five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful run in cycling history. And now the crazy thing here too is especially cycling. Like, you know, if you have like a mental job, like being an accountant um, or, and maybe not even being an accountant, but like the, you know, let's say being a nurse or whatever, like there's a, an understanding that things are trainable somewhat now i i feel like people still don't fucking understand the growth mindset at all and like bitch you can learn anything but especially like i think cycling that's super physical and so you know if you're in britain think of all the the negative thoughts that come in your brain you're like man maybe it's our bad teeth making us have fucking bad cycling genes you know it's like this is fixed this is you know we there's nothing we can do 
Uh, this is this is just genetics of our population. And then five years later, I would guess a lot of the same people are now going on a 10-year run that is the most successful in cycling history. And that is what we're about to do in this here book. Why do small improvements accumulate into such remarkable results? And how can you replicate this approach in your own life? And he says, it's super easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of small improvements on a daily basis. Too often, we convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action. Whether it's losing the weight, building a business, writing a book, winning a championship, you know, we put pressure on ourselves to make some earth-shattering improvements that everybody will talk about. Meanwhile, improving by 1% isn't particularly notable. Sometimes it isn't even noticeable, but it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long run. The difference a tiny improvement can make over time is astounding. If you can get 1% better each day for one year, you'll end up 37 times better by the time you're done. Conversely, if you get 1% worse each day, you'll decline nearly down to zero. What starts as a small win or a minor setback accumulates into something much more. And so this is right. Um, you know, I, let me compare and contrast two fitness programs. So there's this idea, um, this program called 75 Hard. It's got some really cool, I think it's 75, I don't fucking know, 70, I think 75. Uh, it's got some cool marketing and you know it's like it's like some you know pretty handsome but kind of fucking annoying but pretty jack dude talking into the camera and he's like he's like hey 75 hard it's a mindset it's a way of life we're wolves we're fucking feral wolves and in, and you're like well this sounds interesting i i'm kind of fat and living in an office you know like my boss maybe set up a desk here and uh and a bed and and so what 75 hard is is it's like like my old boss did it and then it was like super disciplined for like 40 days and then she like spiraled out of control and it's like yeah no shit dumbass but in like a nice way but it's like you have to work out two hours a day you have to walk two hours a day you've got to do a bunch of work tasks you've got to do like an ice bath you've got to um, you know, eat a shitload of vegetables every day. You can't have any alcohol, like ridiculous. And now I will say, if you do that for six years, you're going to be fucking great. But co contrast that with starting strength, squat, bench, deadlift three times a week, add five pounds to the bar. And you know what? If you stick with starting strength, for six months, which most people do because the barrier to do it is not that much, you'll go from being able to squat, I don't know, 145 to 315. And that's, that is not even bullshit. And so that's what he's saying. Like we feel like we need to be doing 75 hard. And again, do the most hardcore fucking super dedicated discipline plan that you can stick to for five years, I would say. But in reality, the consistency over time is the compounding. Habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them. They seem to make little difference on any given day, and yet the impact they deliver over the months and years can be enormous. It is only when looking back 
two, five, or perhaps 10 years later that the value of good habits and the cost of bad ones becomes strikingly apparent. God damn it. Yes. Making a choice that is 1% better or 1% worse seems insignificant in the moment. But over the span of moments that make up your lifetime, these choices determine the difference between who you are and who you could be. God damn it. I'm just going to read the whole book. <laughs> um, so he, and, and you, know, you guys all know English, but what he's, what he's saying is that like, if you chip away that step, 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 you know, if you just never stop walking, you're going to wake up four years later, you're going to walk to fucking Japan. And the people who started out and they sprinted and then they quit and then they sprinted and they quit. They sprint. They're still in Ohio. Regardless though, it actually doesn't even matter how successful or unsuccessful you are right now. What matters is whether your habits are putting you on the path towards success. You should be far more concerned with your current trajectory than with your current results. And so in sales, we talk about behavior attitude technique. That's the, that's the success triangle that needs to happen um, for someone to be good at sales. So behavior is like, are you doing the activities? Attitude is like, are you consciously coachable and you're not in a total funk because you know dude sometimes man if you have enough giant deals that don't close like everybody it's like being tortured apparently like i kind of still again the same way of like getting hit in the head like i wouldn't break but i probably would immediately break like no no no, no. i'm hungry fine i'll tell you everything um but behavior attitude and the technique is like are how good are they and so when people start all you can really control is your behavior and your attitude and so I was doing an end of year review for one of our junior sales reps. She kind of sucks now. Her technique is not very good. But you know what she fucking perfect about? Her behavior every single day is perfection. Her attitude is like Musashi would, would look at her and like look at him and like, wait, are, are we somehow clones? Like so good. And so we were doing the end of year review with everybody. And, you know, people were kind of saying like, hey, you know, she's green. She... She's, you know, not doing that great. And I'm like, listen, okay, that's that's a lagging, you know, like success right now is a lagging measure of like, what is she doing? And I will tell you that she is doing all the right stuff. And that was six months ago and <laughs> she's doing great. Um, your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. You get what you repeat. If you want to predict where you'll end up in life, all you have to do is follow the curve of tiny gains or tiny losses and see how your daily choices will compound 10 or 20 years down the line. And I don't know why this Reddit comment long ago affected me, but someone was like, hey, um, you know, I'm like 39 and, you know, I'm thinking about starting guitar, but like, you know, let's say I practice for two years, then I'm gonna be like 42, and like I feel like that's just too old. And somebody just commented, "You're gonna be 42 one day, regardless." And so that's a crazy thing to think. What he's saying is like, man, you know, just all you gotta do is 10 to 20 years down the line, like think of how fucking successful you'll be. And and you know, this isn't like sacrifice everything, sacrifice your short, you know, complete short-term gratification, you know, ignore your family, go be a monk. But 
It's the, hey, if you can engineer the environment where you're just spitting out 1% improvement a day, in 10 years, think of where you'll be. But the crazy part is like, people are like, oh, God damn it, dude, I don't want to, I don't want to have to work for 10 years, fuck. But it's like, you know what? As long as you don't like just randomly die, 10 years is going to come anyways. So do you want it to come in your Akuse Mono? Or do you want it to come and you're still a little bon bon eating bitch? I don't know. That was, <laughs> we're going to take a sip of the claws. <laughs> that was a little too aggressive. Right, take it back. <sighs> no offense. See, no offense doesn't hurt people's feelings. Time magnifies the margin between success and failure. It will multiply whatever you feed it. Good habits make time your ally. Bad habits make time your enemy. So dude, such a fucking solid metaphor incoming. Imagine that you have an ice cube sitting on the table in front of you. The room is cold and you can see your breath. It is currently 25 degrees. Okay, so we all know about ice. 32 degrees, that's when that shit melts. But the room is goddamn cold as hell. It's 26. It's 26. And so you're looking at the ice cube and it's just ice. 27. Still ice. 28 degrees. The room's getting warmer. Still ice. The ice cube is still on the table. 29. Still ice. 30. 31. You guessed it. Still ice. 32 degrees. Oh shit. Something happens. The ice begins to melt. A one degree shift, seemingly no different from the temperature increased before, has unlocked a huge change. Breakthrough moments are often the result of many previous actions, which build up the potential required to unleash a major change. Similarly, habits often appear to make no difference until you cross a critical threshold and unlock a new level of performance. In the early and middle stages of any quest, there's often a valley of disappointment. And, the, and like naming things like that, I'm, I'm about to get triggered, dog, but I'm, I'm working through it. So he's saying that imagine an ice cube, you know, you're warming up the room, you know, you're, you're, you're doing burpees and you're warming up the room with your body. Okay. And it's 20, it's 24, still frozen, 25, it's still frozen, 26, all the way up to 31. And dude, you've been doing burpees for six hours and you're like, this is not working. And then all of a sudden you warm the room up to 32 degrees and the ice melts. And he's saying that is fucking how habits work. There's this valley of disappointment where you look and like, dude, you do burpees for four hours and nothing changes. You're feeling pretty shitty because we expect to make progress in a linear fashion. And it's frustrating how ineffective changes can seem during the first days, weeks, and even months. And so, dude, so solid and so true. And so um, I've been shooting my recurve bow because I've got one more block where I'm shooting my recurve and then I'm switching to my compound and I got a seven pin sight. And so my experiment is I'm gonna shoot out to 80 yards. I'm gonna practice my compound bow out to 80. And um, we'll see, man, I'm hoping I can like be at 60 for my shooting range with a deer, which is crazy given performance five years ago, but we shall see. But one thing I've learned uh, because I finally listened to my goddamn redneck friend, like I also learned a great lesson with this is like if Danny says it's true just fucking do it <laughs> because he told me I don't know six years ago he's like hey you know if you shoot a recurve bow you'll be like way better with a compound and I'm like yeah that's probably bullshit like that's so different and then finally I was like are, are you serious like we got drunk around a campfire one night well <laughs> I got drunk he is always responsible um, and 
I, I grilled him and I was like, fine, you convinced me. And so I bought a bow and, uh, two years ago I bought a recurve and dude, I like texted him and said, okay, I, I'm going to reform my ways. I'm truly going to listen to you from now on. Uh, because I was shooting darts. Like I shot a recurve bow and, um, I switched to a compound last year and dude, I was shooting fucking darts. It was perfect. And now, um, you know, we'll see this year. Like I'm, I'm trying to see if, if the, if massive practice with the recurve can even get me better with a compound. But the summary is recurves are hard as shit, man. Like you'll go out there and I don't know, for like three weeks, I could not consistently hit the target. And I was like, this is, I thought I was Pocahontas. This is fucking hard. And, you know, still I will, you know, I'm like, let's see what performance. I hit 13 in a row on the target at 40 yards with the recurve, which hitting on the target is really kind of shitty, but I'm getting better. But there'll be, there'll be sessions, especially with the recurve. It's like so much harder where I will go out and, and I'm just not getting it. And it's fucking shitty. And yesterday, actually, I had a, I had a bad session, but I wrote my notes. Cause again, I, you know, I'm a crazy person. I have everything mapped out. I wrote some notes and I was like, shitty session, but good deposit. 10 of these in a row will propel me to the next level of ability because that is how it works. You start and you're in this valley of disappointment where you're like, and, and you have to almost recognize it for what it is. Because if I got so frustrated, like it's like, I'm trying my best. I can't even hit the target. It's like I was hitting the target at 30. I step back to 35. It's impossible. And that's, that's how I was feeling. And it was like, you know what? Just stack deposits. And then now, uh, since actually writing that, um, you know, I was maybe preparing for this three weeks ago, I've reached a new level. And so that is how habits work. But in order to make a meaningful difference, habits need to persist long enough to break through this plateau. Again, getting goddamn triggered here, but he says, I call this the plateau of latent potential. Okay, I'm trying to be more open-minded, James. If you find yourself struggling to build a good habit or break a bad one, it's not because you've lost your ability to improve. It's often because you have not crossed yet the plateau of latent potential. Complaining about not achieving success despite working hard is like complaining about an ice cube not melting when you heated the room from 25 to 31 degrees. Your work was not wasted. It's just being stored. It's a deposit that will soon turn into good archery performance, goddammit. And when you finally break through the, the plateau of latent potential, people will call it an overnight success. The outside world only sees the most dramatic event rather than all that preceded it. But you know it's the work you did long ago when it seemed you weren't making any progress that makes the jump today possible. Yeah, man, I spent like, I don't know, four and a half years. And I think maybe like a smart person, maybe would spend like a year and a half. But I spent four and a half fucking years like being so damn bad at sales just in general. Now, like there'd be pockets where I'd like learn it and do okay. And like my, my performance was like decent, but it was just, you know, it'd come down to like, hey, well, I better fucking make this happen or else like I'm going to fail and I just have to like figure it out. It wasn't, it wasn't like I ever really knew what the fuck was going on. And then all of a sudden, you know, I get to this new job two years ago and I look around, and I'm like, this is easy. And it is easier than other jobs, but I've hit this point where 
I'm I'm able to do things now that like before like I wouldn't even have a, a concept of how to do. Like I'll be able to go you know go meet someone, uh, grab a coffee with them, and then like turn the conversation in an ethical, cool way where like I'm not really even trying to lead them to it. Just like nicely offer if we want to talk about business, you know, if we want to talk about data analytics. And then all of a sudden I'm selling a million dollar project and like people look at me now at, at work and they're like, man, you just natural salesman. I'm like, bitch, you should have seen some of my earlier sales calls. Like there's one thing I'm not, it's naturally good at sales, but Hey man, I've learned it. And so in all of this, and as we wind down this episode, he's just going to echo what our, um, you know, kind of bald, aggressive, somewhat friend Scott Adams from Dilbert, uh, says, which is. If the concept is true that results are lagging indicators and what really matters are the habits, which are the leading indicators, James is saying, don't really focus on the goals. Goals are about the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the process that leads to those results. And so um, an example, like let's say you're trying to get lean, okay? Like weigh yourself, yes, that's fine. But that's not the goal. That's more of a data point. What you're just trying to do is you're just trying to stack together days where you have perfect performance, where you just execute the system. And the system is a caloric deficit with enough protein and enough vegetables so you're not that hungry and you're like managing yourself and then you do the cardio and you do the working out. And like you do that and the weight loss will just happen. And so, you know, the goal is important but the way you get to the goal is the system and so a system is what we want a system of atomic habits if you're having trouble changing your habits the problem isn't you the problem is your system you do not rise to the level of your goals you fall to the level of your systems <sighs> by now you've probably realized that an atomic habit refers to a tiny change a marginal gain a one percent improvement but atomic habits are not just any old habits, however small. They are little habits that are part of a larger system. Just as atoms are the building blocks of molecules, atomic habits are the building blocks of remarkable results. This is the meaning of the phrase, atomic habits. A regular practice or routine that is not only small and easy to do, but also the source of incredible power, a component of the system of compound growth. <sighs> So he's saying, he introduced it. Hey, we know who he is now. He's James. He's got a little bit of a kind of a weakened face, but he worked through it, got rich, got obsessed with habits, and he realized that results are the lagging indicators. Goals and habits um, are, are related. And, and actually habits and setting up the system is more important. And that is what he's about to walk us into. An easy, regular practice, a thing we can all do Sitting there, no matter what your goal is, there's something you can do that moves you 1% better a day. We're going to figure out what that is. We're going to think about how to structure all of this. And then he's going to build us the system so we can have everything our black and heart desires. But if we want that, if we want more, if we want everything, yes. You're going to have to tune in on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, 
or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.